let's bang this shit out. Let's go. Moist. Um, oh, you got there before me. I was just about to launch into a wonderful intro, and you come out with moist. <laughs> That's turned off half of our viewers now. <laughs> it certainly turned off your good lady. I know that for a fact. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Um, thanks for that wonderful intro. It's completely thrown me. <laughs> yes. But... <laughs> I, I start early. <laughs> And finish early from what I hear. Um, so this is this is a this is Poddywood. I am one of your hosts, Steve Hester, trying desperately not to laugh. And with me, as always, is that would be me, Andrew Roger Carson. Welcome to Poddywood episode eight: The Fate of the Furious. Ooh, I found number. I found an you eight. Found the number eight. Yeah. Yes. We were toying with the idea of doing Star Wars, but we already did that for episode six. So we have a fun packed episode this week. Uh, coming on a little bit later, we have Jay Oliver, who is or has been one of the heads of uh, Warner Brothers Animation for the past decade, responsible for a slew of the DC animated movie output, and has also been working on movies such as, well, pretty much everything in the DC cinematic universe and also some marvel movies but we'll be getting onto that in a bit first we have the rocket science review yes last week on what's in the box steve was lucky enough to get something more resembling a comedy instead of all of this ultra serious stuff that we've been putting him through every single week and we got rocket science which was a 2007 movie by jeffrey blitz well yes like you say the last few weeks has it's been real life kidnapping and murder, vaginal dentures, and then the horrors of rape and murder during a war. So it's not exactly been a fun few weeks for me. This week, though, we watched Rocket Science, which is a story about a uh, young guy called Hal who's in high school and he has a speech impediment. And uh, he gets invited to join the school debating team by a girl called Ginny, played by Anna Kendrick, who looks completely unrecognisable. She looks so young in this movie. She does. This was prior to Twilight. Yeah. The first one. So that's how far back this is. And it's a comedy ish but it's one of those kind of comedies which were very prevalent in the the early 2000s along with things like napoleon dynamite and juno they're kind of very very quirky gawky teenagers who are very very insular and then you've got other teenagers who even though they're like about 14 they're polysyllabic vocabularies and and seem to be ultra super intelligent and slightly a bit bitchy and the whole movie just has lots of tone that you could easily see in maybe like a Wes Anderson movie, but without the skillful um, the skillful camera work that's going on there. In terms of it being a comedy, I wasn't laughing very much. There's a couple of smirky moments, but overall I was just thinking, oh, this is very, very kooky. And yeah, it, it was a film. I don't think it's certified fresh, but, you know, it was certainly a damn sight better than the last couple of weeks. Easier to watch for a start off, I'll give you that. It was a nice way to kind of ease you back into 
you know, some other films until you get whatever you get today. <laughs> I know. It's, I God alone knows what it's going to be like later when we pull it out of the box. But uh, it's probably going to be something completely horrific. It's probably going to be the killing fields or something like that. It could be. You never know. It could be. So on a final note of Rocket Science, is this recommended? What kind of people will like this movie? Well, like you say, if you watched any of those movies like Napoleon Dynamite, you're probably going to love this. Because it's the same kind of tone. Everything's everything's all on the same kind of level. You know, you've got music which is basically made up of a kazoo and an accordion. Uh, the ending's rather anticlimactic in my book. It, everything kind of builds and builds and builds and then just gets completely just swept away. Which I suppose is realistic, but not really what you want in a movie. And it doesn't really have a very satisfying resolution. And if you're after a movie which deals with people that have speech impediments, then just go watch The King's Speech. It was made later, but it's a much better film. Yeah. I thought it, I thought Rocket Science was made after The King's Speech. No, uh, King's Speech was, I think it was like about 2011, 2012. That late? Yeah. I could have swore that was around 2005, 2006-ish. No, it was later than that. Oh my god! And the reason that I know it was later than that is that I was quite thin at the time. <laughs> I know that's made you spit your coffee out, hasn't it? It's not even coffee; it's water. That's how <laughs> realistic that was. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I am actually going to go on the defense for rocket science because uh, I actually enjoyed it. Well, I'm not saying that people shouldn't enjoy it, and people probably will enjoy it. And enough people have enjoyed it for it to get a certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes but for me it was just there really it was the the cinematic equivalent of wallpaper didn't really get much out of it but one thing I do want to say is look it's incredibly easy to be snobby about films and people do get incredibly snobbish about films and we are not that kind of podcast okay we like them we don't like them, but we would never actively say, don't go and see this film. Anyway, so that is the full-on review of what's in the box. And as usual, we take this opportunity to seek into our anniversary segment because there are a couple of very interesting films. Not saying they're good films or bad films, that's kind of up to you guys, that are celebrating their anniversaries this week. So cue that shit, Neil. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Let's start on the anniversaries, the films that are celebrating their releases way back when. And let's see if you've seen them, or if you've not seen them, and how we feel about them. Steve, mm-hmm. did you know that 40 years ago this week... Raiders of the Lost Ark was released. My God. And changed childhoods forever. Wow, 40 years. 40 years, and Indy is currently here. Not even, what? They're only up in Yorkshire, which is not far from where we are. No. Filming Indiana Jones 5 right now. I, I am not excited about Indiana Jones 5 at all. Not in the slightest. Why? He's too old. It's as simple as that. And this is not a slight against Harrison Ford, because, you know, you can't fight the ravages of time, but you want to have a young, swashbuckling adventurer, and you can't do that if you're pushing 80. That's true, but I am intrigued by the plot of this film, because Indiana Jones is basically uncovering uh, the point where Harrison Ford wishes his agent forgot his number. (laughs) He does look constantly pissed off about that fact, doesn't he? 
How'd you get hold of my number? God, I thought I was unlisted. <laughs> George getting... Lucas wants you to be in another movie. Oh, fine, whatever. <laughs> Maybe he has a talking dog in this one. <laughs> and that's, that seeks into him then becoming Han Solo. And it find out it's a connected universe between Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Oh, probably. Because they'll say, we said it all along. Didn't you see those C-3PO and R2-D2 things in the temples? Okay. Well, yes. Uh, happy birthday, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Absolutely amazing film. And there's got to be probably a lot of our younger listeners, if we actually have any listeners, um, <laughs> <laughs> who may not have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And maybe their first introduction was that time where Indiana Jones escaped a nuclear blast in a fridge. Trust me, Raiders of the Lost Ark is genius, even though I will say I like Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls as well. So, mm. <sighs> Last, Cru- Last Crusade but- for me. That's the best one by far. Ooh, controversial. Okay, let's go for 35 years ago. Did you know, Steve? I don't know, Andy. That 35 years ago, Back to School was released. That's Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield and yes. a very young Robert Downey Jr. starting his career off. Oh, he played his son, didn't he? I think he played his son's friend. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Keith Gordon who played his son in it, from my recollection. Now that you mention it, yeah, I've got a picture in my head of Robert Downey Jr. in kind of like, I want to say the same kind of coat that Arnie wore in the first Terminator. But with with like little little shitty earrings and like some round round sunglasses on. Well, th- this was the era where Robert Downey Jr. played the best friend to everybody in a movie. So he was like one of the best friend, although bullies in Weird Science. Mm-hmm. He was the best friend to James Spader in Tough Turf. W- what a classic movie that is! And obviously, he's uh, Keith Gordon's best friend in Back to School. So all within this kind of decade and this time frame. He just was the kooky friend. I'm really, actually, really glad that he was able to get things back on track and join the MCU. Uh, one, because it's always nice to hear about someone that's fallen and then manages to get some redemption. And two, I cannot honestly imagine the MCU now without him playing Tony Stark. So yeah, back to school, starring Rodney Dangerfield, 35 years old today. One that is 25 years old this week is a very obscure film, but I decided to include this purely because... It was the only film of its time to feature Glenn Ruth in an acting role and not in WWE. So it was a film called The Passion of Darkly Noon that starred Brendan Fraser, Ashley Judd and Viggo Mortensen. And Glenn Ruth had a small, tiny role in that. That name rings a bell. I know for a fact I haven't seen it, but... It is a kind of title that does stand out. Yeah. It's like The Legend of Bagavance. It just kind of stays in your head, even though you've not seen the film. I have seen that film. That's the Will Smith and uh, Matt Damon golfing movie. Matt Damon. (laughs) (laughs) Not not a Kathy Bates in sight. No. Okay. I got my Kathy Bates plug in. 15 years ago, did you know, Steve? I don't know, Andrew. That it was the release of the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. This is the one which is completely out of the timeline with the rest of the ones. Is that right? Yeah, this this is where it started going all over, and they've kind of reincorporated it back in now with the new Fast and the Furious, and Lucas Black, who is the main character in it, has now come into it again, so I understand. So it was kind of seen as this black sheep of the Fast and Furious family, 
and at the time it was kind of wow this is so far removed and it's only got a tiny cameo from Vin Diesel at the end to kind of tie this all in mm. but now it's kind of like oh no no it's it's canon it's it's all feeds into it even though at the time we're not stupid we know it didn't and you just couldn't rope the original stars back at the time up until I think yeah I think up until then you had this idea that if you had a first film that did well then you did a sequel that did well and then you had uh, diminishing sequels after that after that everything went downhill budgets went downhill cast usually struggled to return or didn't want to return whatever so you could see that kind of in Tokyo Drift but then everything came back with what was it was it The Fast and the Furious uh, it came back with I think it was, was it just, just Fast, Fast and- Fast and Furious. Yeah. It, you get confused with the titles of them over a while because it's like they don't even try after a while. Then it goes Fast Five, Furious Six, Fasty Fasty, Fury Fury Seven, and stuff like that. And I tell you what, and this, nine. <laughs> yes. Every single way they can use it. It's like they're looking for the everything on a website and they're just typing up every single kind of keyword they can. <laughs> right. I can tell you something, Fast and Furious, if Fast and Furious, the fourth one, hadn't gone the way it did. This franchise would have been direct to DVD, I'm telling you. We, yeah, without after, question. After Tokyo Drift. Yeah. That was the writing on the wall, like, this thing's tanking. We need to bring the original crew back and change the entire focus of these movies to mm-hmm. the point now where they're just loud, huge, bad. They don't even have to make sense. It's not Ronin. That's what I nope. always say. No, but I think it's also done quite well for other franchises as well. Like um, yeah. like the Mission Impossible franchise, I think they're up to about number seven or something by themselves. Six or seven, I can't remember Three. exactly. Isn't it 7.5 this week? Something like that, anyway. <laughs> this thing's just never getting finished. And obviously there's one extra movie that is celebrating its anniversary, and we're doing a special on it next week. Green Lantern is 10 years old this week, and this kind of deserved its own episode, despite what Bill Daly says. It does deserve its own episode, because people want to know more about this movie. People, as I say, are genuinely kind of torn on it, mm-hmm. but we're still fascinated by it. Right? We, we are fascinated by Green Lantern because people will bring it up constantly. Ryan Reynolds does it all of the time, even in his superhero movies now. Yeah, but usually it's to mock it, though. Yeah, but in terms of mocking it, don't we need to know the story behind it and, and kind of judge from there what was going on with it? And that is what we're doing next week on our special. We have brought in former senior vice president of Warner Brothers, Bill Daly, who is involved with Green Lantern. He's going to come in and we're going to shuffle through this IMDb trivia to find out what is actually true, because any person can put shit on imdb that's true so let's have an official person who was involved with it tell us is it true or is it true bollocks well one of the worst things is that next week not only do i have to watch whatever comes out of what in the box later but i also have to rewatch this well if you've not seen the extended version watch the extended version that way at least you're picking out something new oh god bill has been doing his research on it yeah well that's bill he's a masochist Oh, trust me, I don't think he's going to be happy about doing this episode. (laughs) He was just like, there are so many better films to talk about. I'm like, yeah, but none of these other films have actually came out that week. So 
you know, God. there's going to be a point next month where we can talk about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Twister, and and all those movies that were released way back when. You you cannot just point out that Warner Brothers did great movies. They did ones that weren't so great either, and they're the ones where we really want to talk about. Yeah, Schadenfreude all the way. Yes, Schadenfreude. So, well, I guess now that we've done our anniversary segment, we've done our what's in the box recap. I guess it's time to move on and introduce our guest. Today's guest, we invited one of the most celebrated animation directors working today, as well as one of the industry's most respected storyboard artists. No, we didn't get two guests. This guy is just one. Over the course of his career, he's directed some of the most acclaimed animated features in the DC animated universe. That includes Mm -hmm. Justice League, The Flashpoint Paradox, Batman Assault on Arkham, which is a favorite of Steve's, Justice League Dark, and of course, Batman The Dark Knight Returns. Now, he started his career at Fox working on the 1990s Spider-Man series, among others, before landing at Warner Animation, working on such shows as The Batman in the 2000s. From there, he's forged a career storyboarding for many huge blockbusters, including Deadpool, Thor Ragnarok, and of course, the Snyderverse. He now runs his own animation studio, Lexanotis, in Los Angeles, where the first anime series, Treze, has been released on Netflix. Of course, we're talking about the one and only Jay Oliva. Good morning, Jay. How's that post-release celebration morning working for you? It's good, good. I feel like a rock star. I literally just feel like I just woke up. <laughs> you must have been dying because I've heard about your schedule over the last few days, and it's just been intense. Yeah, um, because this is an international release, I've had to do press junkets um, for Manila and uh, Jakarta and other places. So a lot of times the press junkets go from like 10 p.m. my time till like 2.30, almost 3 a.m. Um, so it's, 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 it's rough, but it's, it's, it's good. I wanted to be there for these press junkets as opposed to me sending in my answers uh, so it's 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 fun well i had binged uh, the show overnight what many people may not know widely is that treze is a well-regarded comic property mm-hmm. and it's a great introduction to the first three volumes of it in these first six episodes how's the early feedback been especially from fans of that source material the source material i think the fans uh they they like the fact that like it's kind of familiar because <clears throat> excuse me because we're following the comics but in other times we are totally going our own route i wasn't able to watch all of them yet but i was able to watch the first couple of episodes oh, fine. and mm-hmm. no i really loved it so far i oh, love the thanks. characters i particularly love the twins yeah. i think they're awesome <laughs> yeah they're pretty great um how hard was it to get such a big project finished during this unprecedented global pandemic we had finished pre-production around the time the pandemic was just building up um so you know we were mostly just in post so it wasn't too bad um just i think the hardest thing was doing adr um during this period just you know trying to get the actors to to come in and do the oofs and uggs um that's usually a challenge but we figured out i mean i'm doing other productions as well so luckily we had kind of figured out on those productions by the time that we had to do adr for tresse so it all worked out in the end but it wasn't ideal i miss being in a studio with the actors and being able to kind of feed off their energy as opposed to being on like a zoom call (laughs) (laughs) like this right it's hard for me to feed off of your guys energy right Really? Are we not Come giving on, out Andrew, enough energy? Entertain me. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, dance, monkey, dance. Yes. Are you not entertained? <laughs> but, 
<laughs> Usually I'm catching you at the end of a night, and I'm probably the reason why you used to stay up till 3 a.m. Probably, yes, most yeah. likely. Well, it doesn't surprise me because I've heard, I've heard a lot about the phone calls that you guys have had. We, we can't talk about them here. No, you can't no. talk about the content, no, but Andy said, yes. oh, yeah, we're on the phone for about three or four hours last night, uh-huh. and, uh, and the wife was just looking at me going, oh, God, is he still on the phone? Well, what can we say? Well, I mean, what's so important to note here is is you brought in the original comic artist, uh, Kajo Balsimo? Yeah. Kajo. Yeah, Kajo, uh, yes. You know, I'm English. I'm, I'm going to get these names wrong. Uh, don't, worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Because you're ignorant. Because <laughs> uh, I'm ignorant. And the writer, here we go, Budget and, Tan? Yes, uh, yeah, Budget, yeah. But, but God, you know what? That's what I was originally going to say as well. Budget Tan. <laughs> Uh, so they were on the show, which is obviously a major boost for the credibility in the eyes of uh, the fans. They're just they're the creators of the comic. Um, I consulted them from time to time if I had questions. I actually I really asked them in the very beginning about like personality and and kind of thing, but they kind of were very hands off. I mean, they let me basically kind of do whatever I wanted, which was good. But you know, they knew that I wasn't going to go totally left field and change the spirit of the comic because that's not what I'm about. The show itself takes place in mostly in Manila and yes. it, it's got just as much character as any of the other uh, characters in the series and the backgrounds themselves and some of the imagery that you had particularly in the opening of that first episode was just beautiful mm-hmm. absolutely fantastically detailed kind of reminds me of some of the shots that I saw for the early publicity stuff for Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, yeah. Thank you. But how much of the real city did you end up bringing into the fictional world? Originally, my art director and I, Jojo Aguilar, we, we flew to Manila. We did, a, we did a story summit in the very beginning, so it was myself and the writers. But on our first day of landing, they picked us up at the airport and they said, hey, do you guys want to like rest? And I'm like, no, let's go see the city. So they took, me, they took us around to all of the different locations that are kind of covered in the comic or as as well as like, you know, like um, haunted locations. So we went to like Balete Drive, which was the that first opening in the first episode where, you know, apparently you would see a white lady on the street and you're not supposed to stop and pick her up because apparently she, in different stories, like she either kills you or takes your soul or, or gives you a good time. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Just like but, streets in Manchester. Yeah, then, exactly. Really. Yes. But anyways... Um, there's basically a lot of different, you know, um, mythologies and folklores that we we kind of went to early on, and we took we've tried to visit some of the places that you know where the origin was from, and then what we did is we took a lot of photos. We we I tried to make sure I captured the feel of it. I mean, here's the thing: I wasn't born and raised in in Manila in the Philippines. You know, I was, you know, pretty much here in Los Angeles. So. For me, Manila was a very romanticized city, right? It, it just, you know, it's mm. like it's like you know, London and me too. It's like you know, before ever going to London, I just knew about it from Charles Dickens, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you came here deeply disappointed. I, exactly, you know, and I was like, hey, you know, where are the dialects and where's where's the where's the you know, I'm looking for all of the you know Doctor Who stuff. Like, I'm I don't get this, you know. Um, so anyways, we, we, we traveled around. I tried to try to capture as much as I could. I mean, you know, uh, luckily, you know, the fans and everything, uh, especially the ones from the Philippines, haven't called me out on it because they said, you know, it feels like it. I mean, it's it's still a fictionalized version of Manila. It's not really like, I'm not trying to make any political commentary about it, but I tried to capture the, the look and feel 
of the the city and make it and make it actually a character in the show, right? So that way, like you know, Gotham City, to you know, Batman. I wanted to make Manila to be that important to to the character of Alexander Tresse and and the team. Does that include the uh, the breaking down of the train system? Yes, apparently that happened. <laughs> so here's what's funny is that they took me to um, the MRT is what they call it, and it's a you know it's a raised um, train system. And we were, you know, they took me during rush hour, so I got to enjoy the the beauty of it being super packed, just like the tube in London. Um, yeah. But but unlike the tube in London, I believe it had air conditioning. So yes. I don't know how the Philippines, a third world country, has air conditioning in their M- MRT like subway system, and you guys still is hot. <laughs> but you but know, anyways, you, you know the main reason for that is just the. The amount of resentment of people on the tube, you're just feeling mm. everybody's heat. Yeah. Oh, is that what powers the actual train? Is that why? It is. is that what yeah. powers it? Okay, it's not solar powered. It's just like it's powered by the just the, the English just, yes, <laughs> the hate. <Yeah. laughs> Anytime someone talks on the tube, the train picks up speed, you know, he's getting that extra <laughs> No jolt. wonder. No wonder. Um, but anyways, um, back to my So I wrote it, you know, at, at peak you know, and it was it was packed. Not too bad. I've been actually in more packed trains. Like I've been in the on the you know on the trains in in Tokyo where they literally like push you all the way in until like uh, to the point where my feet were lifted off the ground at one point, and I was I was just and I was suspended by the bodies of all these Japanese people because I. That's how packed it was in that car, right? Um, so, anyways. <laughs> Um, so we rode the MRT, and while we were riding it, it was in between stations. They used to tell me, like, "Oh, by the way, you know, sometimes this thing breaks down." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, it breaks down. So what happens?" You know? And they're like, "Well, they just open the doors, and you just walk." And I'm like, "Wait, walk like, just walk, walk?" They're like, "Yeah, you just walk the tracks." And remember, this these things are raised up off the ground, like I don't know, fifteen, twenty feet up. I mean, it's 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 high enough that if you fall, you I think you would die. And I thought that was just wild because, again, there are no, like, safety rails. There's nothing. It's just like, no, just walk. and It's basically walk and just be sure don't die, right? Whereas here in America, we have safety rails for everything because, sure enough, someone's going to try to die, right? They're like, there's no rails here. I'm jumping, right? Um, so, so, I, so after they told me that story, you know, I turned to them. I was like, that's a cool opening. I was like, we're going to do this thing where the train breaks down in the middle of the night. And then they get attacked by the Aswang, which is like our version of, of a vampire. Yeah, and it is a good opening as well. Well, I know, as you mentioned, you know, your Filipino roots obviously made this a hugely important project. First one out the door for your studio. Uh, and you also wanted to kind of encourage regular viewers to learn about the culture and the language, which is why the Filipino terminology is present in both the English and Japanese dubs. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it should be even in the it should be in all of the dubs. Because the spells and the expressions, we we should have. I think they should be in all of the. Um, I haven't listened to the German version, by the way, but um, the trailer that I watched was still pretty legit. But I, I, you know what? I have to check on the spells. But from my understanding, the spells still stayed the same in all of the dubs. Yes, just in the German one, they shout it a lot more. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I love Germany, been there many a time, but I will say this, it is not a romantic language by by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't know if you guys know this, but the the Germans take their dubbing, like, seriously. Like, they like like to do legit dubs of, you know, of, you know, different movies and to the point where it's an art form over there. Like, so, 
um, I forgot who, but my buddy was telling me about how, you know, he grew up on, you know, American films that were dubbed in German and he didn't even know that they were American films until much later in his life because he just thought they were all, because they did such a good job of matching the lips and, and the translations that it looked like a German film. So I was like, huh, I wanted to go see that. I want to see like Weekend of Bernie's in German, see how, <laughs> how like, how close they, they were able to make it, so... Uh, you touched on the kind of monsters and ghosts and creatures of all descriptions that were in the show. And uh, there's a lot of them which are drawn directly from Filipino folklore and superstition. Uh, but which ones are your favorite and which one the most interesting to adapt into the show? Uh, oddly enough, the, my favorite one isn't really in the show. Um, mostly because, uh, and this is why you'll, you'll probably agree with me. Um, so... It's called the Mananangal, right? Um, it's that's a mouthful. Trying to spell it is also pretty interesting. Mm. But basically, the Mananangal is usually like uh, a woman. Um, it varies depending on you know who's telling the story in the region, but it could be a very beautiful woman or just a regular woman. Um, but uh, they they look like regular people walking around. But when it comes to the nighttime, what they do is they split from their body. Well, okay, they sprout wings, number one, and they split from their bodies so that way their entrails, entrails are just hanging down on the upper half, right? And they, and they fly around looking, looking for pregnant women because, and then they have this long tongue that extends out from their mouth that basically kind of injects into the the woman's belly and feeds on the embryo or on the baby, and this is kind of a, a way that they would ex- they would explain like miscarriages or early you know early um, early births you know is because the Mananangal was able had gotten to the baby. Um, the, the crazy part is this: is that in order to fight the Mananangal or defeat it, you have to find the lower half and you have to sprinkle salt. On the exposed uh, lower half of the body, um, so that when the Mananangal tries to connect back to itself, it can't because apparently salt prevents it, and that and then it'll eventually die because it can't reconnect. I think there was a film. I think it was called Mystics of Bali. A really, really like crappy uh, <laughs> late seventies, early eighties B movie where that happened. A lot of the mythologies from the Philippines, um, there are counterparts in other parts of the world, like in um, Southeast Asia, for example. There are different; they're just called different things. But I, as for me, the Mananangal, you know, as a kid, I remember hearing the stories and just thinking, "This is the most batshit crazy thing I've ever heard. This is awesome." Um, <laughs> and so, and so on the series. I didn't really feature them mostly because I know that that it needs its own episode just because, you know, I think if we did it for the Filipino audiences, they'll be like, yeah, we know the Mananangal. But it, trying to explain that concept to Western audiences, I think I think I need to have an episode to just be like, OK, OK, white people, let me let me explain this to you. There's some crazy shit. Right. And I'm going to explain it like this. So we have to. So, so if we do get another season or seasons. I'm hoping to um, kind of elaborate that. <laughs> well, Tre- Treze is undoubtedly uh, one of the largest representations for Filipino anime that's hit the mainstream so far. Uh, talk of it has been everywhere. It's kind of opened eyes to the excitement of this growing creativity and artistry from this part of the world. 
So do you think this is now going to grow support from more local audiences and authorities with the showcase of talent they have? What do you think the future holds for animation from the Philippines? Um, it's funny. I didn't really realize how like a momentous, you know, this this title was until I started doing press junkets and realizing that this was the first you know, anime or animated series made for international audiences, right? It's not just made, you know, just for the Philippines, even though it, it has the Philippines as like the major, like this is the, the, the audience that we're appealing to. So it wasn't until the press junk that I realized like how uh, how much uh, is on the shoulders of this of this series in order for it to hopefully open doors for other content from other Filipinos, uh, whether it's here in America or, or or in the Philippines, you know, and also open up more stories coming from the Philippines that can be for mainstream audiences. I mean, look at look at Korean cinema, right? Fifty years ago, I didn't I can't think of any Korean films, right? That I new you know ever since the 80s and early and the 90s there had been a steady stream of really good korean films and and live action of course and and that has opened the door to of course uh, with parasite winning an, an oscar right so i'm yeah. hoping that this can kind of change the the way the you know the world sees filipino um, stories and filipino cinema and hoping that they in the Philippines, they uh, with with the with the attention the show is getting, that this leads to a lot of doors opening um, for a lot of people. Well, this is actually it's the first project from your studio, Lexanotis, and uh, I've been down since day one. I've seen you build this studio from the ground up uh, with some of the best people in the animation industry, whether it be uh, Jojo, uh, Chris Lazinski, David. Of course, we love David Hartman, mm-hmm. and. This surely holds a lot of excitement for everyone on the team and all the projects that you've now got in development. Yeah, everybody's great. We started in in January of 2019 on Tresse. We finished pre-production in um in about March of 2020. And then we did post till about January of this year. So January 2021, we, we delivered all six episodes. So Netflix takes this time to basically do all, all of the rest of the dubbing. There's some quality control. Uh, and then and then we, we the team ended up being split up to all of the other productions that I have. Um, so they're all doing well, at least, you know, I hope so. There's no bodies buried in the backyard yet, um, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're doing well. You know, we're, we've got multiple productions. Uh, some of, two of them I'm doing with Zack Snyder. I've got a couple other that um, are doing with other clients. So we're actively pitching and developing a lot of projects. So, so it's, 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 it's going well. I've, I've, the, the team has grown from, I believe, seven people. I mean, we had seven artists, one production, so eight um, to almost a hundred now, I think. The last time I wow. checked, there's there's a lot of art, there's a lot of people that have been hired during the pandemic that I've not even met in person. It works on both the the DC Cinematic Universe and also on the MCU. Yes, um, you know, most obviously probably Thor Ragnarok, which was just a magnificently brilliantly visual and really kooky film to watch. Yeah, uh, how did you mm-hmm. find the process differing between the two studios? With the MCU with Kevin Feige, I I had worked with him a long time ago before you know he was who he is, 
when uh, when he was one of the executives uh, on the Marvel animated films that we did with Lionsgate. It was a Lionsgate uh, Marvel yeah. film studio, and that was where I first met Kevin. He was like an early exec. I don't think he was like a. I think he was like a junior executive. He wasn't even the main exe- exec. I think what he learned with that whole process, uh, I can't remember how many movies we did, um, but we of course storyboarded everything out you know they made notes and uh we addressed it and that's very similar to how he he runs the the marvel division of of disney with thor ragnarok i worked directly with taika taika's great super funny and uh, to the point where like after what what we do in shadows when that movie came out yeah it was while i was in production uh with uh, on uh, Thor with him, I could not look at him the same way because I kept seeing him as a vampire that's in the, in the movie, and I just could not like it was just so hard to like keep a straight face. But but anyway, so I would work with Taika directly. You know, I, I you know he'd give me his his kind of ideas for a sequence. You know, of course, I'd have the script. I have all of the models. I start storyboarding it. Once I get it to where Taika's kind of happy with it, then we then pitch it to uh, Kevin. And so I usually make an animatic. Uh, I time it out. Sometimes I'll throw music on it, but I'll just because I do that all the time for animation. So I'll time it out, and we just show it to Kevin. And then he gives us notes, and that's kind of a very different situation. Whereas for the DC EU, working on those shows, I think I had a very um, unique position because I worked not only with Zack Snyder, I worked with a lot of the other directors on the DC EU. So I was working with Rick Famuyiwa on the Flash shows. I'm only on something the Flash movie. I mean, uh, I was working with Ben Affleck, of course, on his Batman movie. Um, I was working with Patty Jenkins on Wonder Woman. So I was working with pretty much all of the directors. I didn't work on Aquaman, and I didn't work on Shazam, and I didn't work on um, David Ayer on Suicide Squad, unfortunately. But for those three directors or four directors, yeah, I think it's four. The process was kind of like the kind of old school Hollywood style. It was still where I worked directly with the director. And I would you know, do my sequences and I would turn it in. They'd give me revisions and then that's it. I wasn't pitching this to like the head of the division. I wasn't doing it to like Jeff Johns or, or John Berger, who's the other, uh, it was the president and vice president of, of the, the DC thing at the time. So I, didn't, I wasn't doing that. It was just mostly directly to the directors. So uh, that, that's a difference. That's a big difference, I think, is that there wasn't, somebody like a Kevin to kind of oversee the individual movies. That's kind of in a nutshell. Other than that, like, you know, I mean, I've done superhero stuff for a very long time. I I honed my craft doing the animated stuff. So by the time I ended up doing the live action, you know, big screen versions, I was mostly like, cool, this is going to be very expensive, but, you know, let's let's, let's try this, right? So uh, for me, it wasn't really, I you know, it was just... It's like fitting into a glove. It was something that I had already done before. And I like working in live action because, well, you get paid a lot better, number one. Uh, Number two (laughs) is um, the schedule is a little bit more forgiving. With like movies like My Dark Knight Returns or when I was on a series like Young Justice, a lot of times the fight choreography for those shows are, are worked out within like a week and I'm drawing it out, trying to get it done in a, such a short time frame. Whereas the the movies, I, I tend to have a couple months, you know, to work it out. But of course, you know, sometimes I'll finish it early, but then, you know, I'll have the initial idea done, but then I'll have a lot of time to, for refinement to really kind of work it out so that way the VFX artists uh, and the stuntmen know exactly what I'm going for. But unlike the animated stuff, you know, I'm only working on 
sequences here and there, whereas for the animated stuff, you know, I'm working on almost everything. I mean, I, of course, when you're a storyboard artist, you're only working on sections, but when I'm directing, of course, I'm looking at the whole thing, so it's a little bit more responsibility. When I do stuff with Zach, I'll finish a sequence, and then he'll be like, this looks cool, and I'll be like, okay, I'm handing off to you, good luck trying to shoot this, right? Because, <laughs> you know, that still needs to get translated, where when I draw it for animation, they just for the most part, you know, use my boards as a, as a kind of a template and they usually draw on top of it, fix it, and then animate from there, you know. So it's a little bit more one-to-one, whereas when Zach and, and the other live-action directors have to shoot my boards, they have to figure out, okay, how do we do this without killing the stuntmen? Or how do we do this in such a... Because, you know, sometimes the stuff I come up with is a little dangerous for the stunt team. Well, when we first met, it was after I'd been to Warner Animation, I was meeting with another friend there, Mike Deeser, who had invited me along. Uh, you were established there as the director on the DC Animated Universe by that point. I believe you were between uh, Justice League War and Batman Assault on Arkham around that time. So how different is it now approaching source material on something like Tresse as it was to handle this huge machine that is the world of DC? Um, let's see. That's a good question. I mean, with the DC stuff, or even Marvel for that matter, there's been multiple versions of these characters and these stories, because I mean, both those characters have been around for 75 plus years, you know. For Tresse, it's only been around since maybe about 2007. There hasn't been as many iterations of it, whereas, you know, with uh, the DC and Marvel stuff, usually as soon as a new artist and writer combination comes in, they tend to throw out the old stories and come up with something new. With this one, the artists and I mean the artists and the writer, the creators had you know basically been the only ones to actually do this comic and do a version of this comic, right? So there is no like other version done by another artist or writer that's been done before. So I was the first person to kind of really come in and do my interpretation of it. So in some ways, it was a little bit nerve wracking just because I, I wanted to make sure I get this right because no one else had done it before. But in other ways, I felt it as an honor, like out of all the artists out there or filmmakers, you know, I'm the one who gets the first crack at this. So I think for me, it was a little bit of a challenge because I wanted this to be so perfect. Um, and we didn't have a lot of time. You know, like we, we only had six episodes to get this right. We only did the first three volumes of the comic, and I think they were up to volume seven at that point. So there was a lot of story already done. But the thing is, is that with those comics and, you know, uh, the writer budget will uh, attest to this, is that there was no end game. They, they hadn't really planned out the big overarching story. They, they, he had ideas of what he wanted to do as a writer and what kind of stories to tell, but how those stories all tied together into the arc of the character, the, uh, the overall arc of the series, um, it was still kind of up in the air. For me, as the showrunner and director of the series, I had to look at the source material and ask myself, okay, what are the common threads? Like, what is the first season going to entail? What is the character arcs? How do we tie some of these cases together? Because it is it is a procedural, right? And I wanted to do a thing where they investigated what seemed to be these incidents non-connected but then you find out at the end that there is a common thread throughout all of them and it leads ultimately to the final showdown. Um, The only thing that I wasn't quite sure of was 
the personality of Alexandra Tresse, like how is she? You know, there's there's one way that I would read the comic in my head. There's another way that the uh, creators intended her to be. But after talking to Budget, I would basically said, "What's her personality? What's she like? You know, and everything." And he's like, "Well, you know, she's very reserved and stoic. She's a lot like Bruce Wayne, Batman." I'm like, "Okay, cool. I know that, right? I mean, I've done a lot of Batman. So if there's anybody who knows Batman, I think I should say that I can I know that." So. So one of the things I did, though, is I wanted her to be this kind of strong, stoic kind of character like Batman, right? Uh, very much like Batman when she's you know on the cases and stuff. But there's moments where she's alone, which I put in the first episode, which uh, I think, Steve, you might have seen at the end of the first mm-hmm. episode, where she kind of washes her face and looks herself into the mirror. And then that's when the, the phone call calls in and the you know, her Captain Guerrero says that we've got another case and then we cut yeah. away. So what I wanted to do is I basically lifted that from Casino Royale, right? I love the idea of, of Bond, like, doing that fight in that uh, stairwell and then he has to basically recompose himself and then go back and go play cards, right? And that was something that I really liked. I wanted to show the kind of humanity of this person, uh, of, of Alexandra, is that, like, she, she sees some crazy shit and... She has to keep it together, but when she's alone, that's the only time where she can let her guard down. And that's something that, as a Filipino, and you know, I think that's something that we do a lot where you know, we have to be perfect all the time, right? Our, our parents are always saying, like, why aren't you bringing home all A's? You, know, you bring in you know, all A's, and they're like, why aren't these all A pluses? You bring in A pluses, and they're like, why isn't this all honors, right? So it's this constant, like perfection that, that our parents are constantly beating down into us which I get why they do it but as a kid like it's, it's very stressful and it's the idea of uh, one of the things I wanted, wanted to touch upon as a theme for the series was about you know of course family but family duty right and, and also you know what happens when that's different from what you want for yourself right and, and then how do you balance that you know, when I was growing up, my parents said, you'd be a doctor. And I said, okay, right? Uh, there was no, like, in Filipino households, rarely is there ever a discussion where they say, you can do whatever you want to do, honey, right? And we'll support it, right? It's more like, you need to do this because this is what it's going to make money or whatever. So I think that was what I wanted to touch upon on the series is, like, who Alexander Tresse and who she is as a woman um, doing this job and, what, and, and the emotional take uh, on her. But the fact that she has this duty to her family, like because her family has been basically doing this job for a very long time, she, you know, she's the protector of the city. She's lives are at stake because she has to be there um, to protect everyone. I mean, that's that's some heavy stuff for for anybody to kind of you know put on their shoulders. So I wanted to make sure that that was you know one of the kind of overall themes. I mean, of course, you know, six episodes. Yeah, you know, you're basically getting a very little taste of the world and and how deep we go with the character of course if we get more seasons you know we, you know we already have plans of, of really elaborating and and kind of really deep diving into into her character more and and the world i know that uh, you and andy you've been you guys have been friends for a while and uh, yeah, i don't know if we call it friends it'd be more like frenemies right right <laughs> you Andrew. tolerate each other <laughs> we do yes as, uh, as much as possible. We, we yes. do it really well. I know you you two have also been kind of working on a few things together yourselves. Yes. Um, are you looking at uh, moving away from animation and into live action? Is that something that you're looking on in the in the future? Quite a few years ago, I was already planning on my exit strategy from animation to live action. Um, 
mostly because at that point in my career, I had kind of hit the ceiling of where I could go as an animation director. You know, animation director, you're still basically working from gig to gig. You know, I, the only next step would be for me to develop my own kind of series and and try to pitch it and uh, and go from there, right? And and maybe you know um, be a showrunner or executive producer, which is usually the next step from where you are a director. But I kind of saw myself at the at the ceiling of where I could go and. At the time, you know, the animation industry wasn't booming like it is now with the streamers like Netflix and Amazon really taking its chances on shows like Invincible or Castlevania. So at the time, you know, most of the stuff was like, hey, you can do Scooby-Doo and, you know, the WWE or stuff like that where it's like, "Mm, okay, do I really want to work on another Scooby-Doo or the 10th version of Spider-Man or whatever? I mean, it was I was having fun working on the DC animated stuff. You know, because we were working on the like, we were translating the, the the graphic novels like you know like we were translating like Dark Knight Returns or Flashpoint Paradox. So those to me were fun. Of course, you know that list starts getting less and less every year of which what kind of titles you want to work in. So that's why I I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm already doing this live action stuff. But the thing is, I didn't want to do live action storyboards because I mean I could do that anytime what i wanted to do is live action directing but that's hard i mean it's 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 hard like and the easiest route is to write something and then and then attach yourself to it and say hey you know i'll write it and i'll forego my either my directing fee or my writing fee to be attached to this and you basically the studio gets a two for one right mm-hmm. um but the thing is, is that like i i'm not a writer right so you know when i was when i was talking to Andrew, I was like, hey, man, let's just write something together, right? Let's just do something together. So, you know, we collaborated a lot of stuff, but that's kind of why I wanted to kind of get out of animation. Now, fast forward, right? I didn't think in my wildest dreams I'd own an animation studio, so I kind of jumped, you know, and, and you know, and instead, of, instead of just show running one show, I'm show running, I think, five shows now, right? So I've kind of, from that time to now, you know, I've, I've kind of like, jumped at least in my career in animation live action i'm still doing you know i'm still helping out on storyboarding on films every now and then when if a director calls that i want to work with um i'm still trying to i've got like live action series and live action movies that my studio is developing um there's a project that andrew and i are working on that uh, are projects that we've got that i want to eventually start shooting someday so the future looks bright in terms of where I'll be five years. I hopefully in five years from now, you'll be like, so Jay, you've done five live action films and 25 uh, animated series. W- what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to Disneyland. Right? I'm hoping that's, <laughs> that's what it's going to be for a five year podcast. Oh, that'd be nice. Yes. Uh, well, there you go, mum. I do work. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, just going back to uh, Dark Knight Returns, uh, it's, it's one of the greats of the comic book industry. You know, you've got uh, you've got that, you've got Batman Year One, and probably the Killing Joke are probably the three biggest and most influential ones in sculpting the character that we mm-hmm. know today. So, how daunting was it to take on such an iconic project like that? It's it's daunting when you think about it, right? When you think about it, like, holy shit, this is something that's so beloved. You know, you got to get this right. But I like challenges, right? I love working on shows like that as opposed to like something that's totally original and maybe I'm not quite into, right? No, don't get me wrong. There are projects that like original that I that I hear about that I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I want to work on this. But when you get like Dark Knight Returns, for example, or um, you know Flashpoint Paradox, like that's something that as a filmmaker, 
it's like a dream job. There are a lot of people who would kill to work on it, right? Now, I didn't know this back then, but apparently back before I did my film, people used to call The Dark Knight Returns as being unfilmable, right? It would, you know, there's no way yeah. you can translate the Frank Miller's, you know, grittiness and all that kind of stuff, the tone into a cartoon, let alone a live action film. Of course, that's when I'm like, hold my beer, right? Like, let me show you. And uh, uh, see, that's the challenge. I like that. But I didn't know, I didn't hear about that until after, like, I remember I was doing the press junkets for Dark Dark Returns. And he said, how does it feel to film the unfilmable? I'm like, I, I didn't know that. Nobody told me that. That was probably why you did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was probably why. I, the now there are, were some challenges for that for example is because you know when you read the dark knight returns again you go through it it's a frank miller fever dream like it's it's pretty it's pretty deep so there's a lot of panels and instances where i'm like i don't quite know what's going on here right like you know like there's for example there's a scene where he just comes out of a flashback of seeing his parents killed and then he it's it's raining or is he in the shower all right, and, and, and there's a scene where he's naked and he's standing in what appears to be the rain or a shower because in his hand, it looks like he has this sudsy thing that could be considered a bar of soap or it could be just the raindrops hitting his hand. And I remember, you know, my team and I, we, we were going back and forth. I'm like, what exactly is that? panel about like and i just thought well it's kind of weird that after he you know his parents are killed he just feels like he has to take a shower right i don't I th and so i ended up changing it but still keeping the spirit where in the movie he has this flashback and that's when he sees he was seeing it on a tv right and then he sees himself on the tv and then he runs outside onto the uh, balcony and it starts raining and then he starts having the flashback to his parents getting killed because i wanted to associate the rain with the death of his parents and also how you know later on that becomes his baptism right it's like that's how it is in the books so i tried to connect the two in such a way that you don't remember that naked panel of bruce wayne well, everything's up to interpretation, right? I mean, I couldn't call up Frank Miller and say, hey, Frank, well, what's, what's up with this bar of soap, right? I mean, I don't have that kind of relationship. And plus, <laughs> the production was like, we just have to keep moving, right? So I just had to already have it all planned out. Well, last week, we held a feature on our show called Get It Freshed, where we both would take turns selecting films not certified fresh that we feel should be. And Steve picked Man of Steel between his choices, which naturally you storyboarded. Uh -huh. uh, we can't escape having you on here without having at least one little something about the Snyderverse, of which you were an integral figure in the Restore the Snyderverse movement initially. Here we are, 2021. Zack Snyder's Justice League's finally been released to uh -huh. critical and fan acclaim. I know it's something huge for you personally after so much work you put in to see it finally realized. I mean, here's the thing. I knew it was always going to come out. I, how soon it would come out, I, I didn't really know because I'm not a studio exec. But it made sense from a business standpoint that you have a streaming service, you have something that is potentially pretty much almost done. Of course, it needed some money. I know a lot of people are like, see, look, it still needed X amount of millions. I'm like, dude, it's expensive. You know, like, you know, you, you know, I'm expensive. It's just the storyboard artist for me. I'm pretty expensive. So if, if, <laughs> if they're going to like do some VFX stuff or do some reshoots or do what it's going to be, it's going to cost money. Right. And they kept saying like, well, because of, we thought it was hundred percent done and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, we shot everything. There's still some stuff that needs to be done. Like you still need to do either ADR, you do color correction. I mean, they're, they don't understand 
the process, right? And that's why, like, on Twitter, I would jump on and just kind of, like, call people out for basically spreading disinformation about the Snyder Cut or even just how films are made, right? It's just ridiculous. Films now are edited the same day they're shot, right? I mean, the, the, the director and his film crew is still shooting while they're sending the footage to the editor and he's cutting it into the timeline. And then, of course, the director sits in at the end of the day and looks at the dailies. So, so by the end of shooting, principal photography, there's already a cut. And that's why I kept trying to explain to people, listen, you're, you're talking out of your ass, number one. And number two, there is a cut. There's multiple cuts. You know, I mean, there's even for my films, there is a Jay Oliva cut of Dark Knight Returns, right? It's not as extensive as, you know, what you saw on Zack's stuff. But there are scenes that we cut or things that we trimmed just because the animation didn't come back the way we wanted it or uh, we realized that pacing-wise it was dragging and we needed to kind of lose it for pacing. So there's a lot of different reasons why. But people just don't understand that, yeah, there there are different cuts. And in live action, <laughs> there's multiple upon multiple cuts because you have to screen it for the studio execs. Yeah. You get notes, you do it, you recut it again, screen it again, get notes, redo it again. So by the time four, five, even six, or even more versions of the cut is done, you know, finally when it's all agreed upon of where it's going and the execs are happy, that's when you plan for reshoots because, you know, some exec might be like, well, you know, you really need a scene where Lois Lane gets in a car and drives away. And so we're like, okay, shit, okay, fine. You know, let's put that in reshoot. It was never planned on it, but when you're looking at the at the footage, you're like, okay, well, we need a kind of a scene in between these two scenes in order to kind of add traveling shot or something like that. So that happens all the time everywhere. But of course, everyone was just pointing fingers as if like, oh, see, that's, you know, that's proof the Snyder Cut doesn't exist. And, and I'm just like, okay, if it doesn't exist, then why was I in London for for almost two months, right? Well, it's ridiculous to think that this doesn't exist when clearly, like, they spent a lot of money, they've shot it all. You know, I was there for the last shot, and they did the last shot here in LA. I was there for that, right? So I knew what was there. I mean, I knew all the scenes that, that Darkseid was in. I mean, I had boarded a lot of those sequences. Of course, I couldn't tell anybody. So, but I had to just tell people, like, listen, what you saw in the Joss Whedon cut was just a small percentage of what was actually there. For me, I only worked on quite a few big sequences in the movie, so I it was it wasn't as extensive as let's say Man of Steel or Batman v Superman, where I was with Zach for a very long time. They always bring me in when Zach's busy, which thank God because for Justice League, Zach had already storyboarded pretty much most of the movie, but they had some new sequences that needed to be done, and he was like, "I'm shooting. There's no way I have time to draw this." So of course that's when they call me. So that's why I'm always happy. In my mind, whenever Zach is shooting, I'm always praying that I hope he's late. I hope he's busy, because then I get a call and I get to play with him. You know, I get to have fun in this world. Just because there's a, a DC movie doesn't mean that I'm naturally going to be on it. The director still has to like me. I, there's a lot of things that I'm just an afterthought, right? I'm just a storyboard artist. They're, 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 they're trying to worry about like the actors, you know, their schedules and all these different things. You know, they're, it's spinning plates, right? When you're the director. So for me, having been a part of it for all those movies back then was, you know, kind of unique because I had set the tone with Man of Steel with Zach and I was continuing it with Rick and Ben and Patty, you know, on their films and it was fun and I really wish the fans would have gotten seen those versions because those versions were, were pretty awesome. Of course, you saw Wonder Woman with Patty, uh, Ben's version of Batman and, and uh, Rick's Flash, I thought 
were pretty amazing. I was saddened to hear that both of those projects were were shelved. Well, we do have some quickfire questions from some Reddit users that Steve has kind of sourced. But before that, I know you have some incredible projects ahead. Obviously announced is the Army of the Dead Lost Vegas. And now we've heard about Twilight of the Gods, both with Zack Snyder, which have been announced mm-hmm. this week. So what can people expect here? I think for those two projects, I mean, it's it's more Zack Snyder, Jay Oliva goodness, I would say. Um, it's fun. I basically gave Zack a call and said, hey, you know, you want to do animation? You know, he's done Guardians of Garwold, you know, uh, but that's a feature. And feature is a, quite a different, it's a different beast. But, you know, he, he wanted to help me out and, and he you know, said, sure, let's, let's try it. So uh, we had originally signed on to the Norse series, uh, Twilight of the Gods, first. But because Army of the Dead, uh, the live action, ended up getting greenlit, we, and, and they wanted us to do a prequel animated series, we just switched them. So we did Army of the Dead, Las Vegas uh, first, which we are in the pretty much almost done with, at least the pre-production side. And then we are going to be, I think, promoting that maybe later this year or early next year, hopefully. It's looking really good. And then the Norse stuff, the Twilight of the Gods, of course, we just did the cast announcement. That's not the full cast. It was actually a, a much longer roster. So we have that. You know, I'm also sure running Arc, uh, the animated series, which uh, yes. I believe the trailer came out last year. So that show uh, is pretty much almost done. We are... Uh, and that's going to be hopefully coming to a streamer or network near uh, near you guys at some point very soon. With an incredible cast attached to that also. Yes, it's one of those uh, moments where I, I look around and I ask myself, how could I be in a recording booth with you know Russell Crowe? Now, of course, because of COVID, he, he wasn't there, but... The fact that I'm in a project with him and, you know, of course, Carl Urban and Jeffrey Wright and Michelle Yeoh. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, we did Malcolm McDowell. You know, I was just like, Jesus, this guy's it's Clockwork Orange, right? And he's so good. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, it, that project to me was very special because it, it allowed me to work with talent that I would have never had access to ever in my career. So, I, I, you know, when that comes out, I hope you guys will do a follow-up podcast or something. But it's pretty fun and it's pretty amazing and, and a badass uh, animated series. Okay, well, well, we look forward to that. I definitely will have to watching a number of your things over the years, not least of which was Assault on Arkham, which I really enjoyed. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked that one. But for now, we've got a few questions which have been sent in from a sure. couple of the users on Reddit. Uh, but sure. We've got uh, J Stormtrooper wants to know you talked about a sequel for Batman Assault on Arkham. Can you elaborate on what the potential plot line was going to be? I think it was pretty badass, but. Um... No, you have to, they have to campaign Warner Brothers to basically reach out to me to do the sequel. <laughs> Sorry, I, it was pretty good, I think, because um, they ended up doing the Hell to Pay, which, but that one was a sequel, but not quite sequel, because it was set in the New 52 universe, whereas my Assault on Arkham was purely in the Arkham video game universe. Uh, and what I was doing was kind of following where the video games were kind of going, if that was any hint. But like I said, like I think it would have been a pretty badass. And but I I can't really reveal much. Next we've got Deathlight Seven Thousand. God, I love Reddit usernames. I really do. <laughs> uh, they ask. I don't know who it is. Uh, are there any plans for a shared DC animated universe, or are they just going to continue being standalone movies? Um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't worked at. DC Warner Brothers since 2016, so I have no clue. When I was there, you know, 
we used to do standalone movies and then the the public used to cry out and say why aren't they connected so then we started connecting them and the new 52 stuff and then they started started crying why aren't they doing standalones so you know it's like you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't so i don't know Okay, fair enough. Can't argue with that. Uh, Nightwing six one two asks a young justice question. Uh, oh, sure. Wants to know if you can go into any more detail regarding which characters you couldn't use for series one. That's a better question for the executive producers and writer, like you know, uh, Greg Wiseman and and Brandon Vietti. I was a series director, so I was basically I had no say in the development. They just handed me the scripts and says, "Here it is, make this awesome." So I really, I really had no say. Most of the stuff that I was trying to do is I basically was going to the creative team and saying, "These scripts are really long. Can we cut something out?" And they're like, "No, everything's gold." So, um, <laughs> so that's why those shows, if you watch it, like it, it there's a lot packed into it. Like, it's wall to wall, everything in there from the teenage angst to fight sequences to setting up storylines that were going to be pay off three seasons later later like it was like machine gun fire of like content so i really didn't have any say whatsoever i was just trying to just survive and just get through the season because it was it was a lot of stuff we had to do that first season to, to set up so unfortunately sorry i don't really know what else uh, i mean you know we're how many seasons in now i think they've basically he tried to hit every single DC character ever created, as well as as well as some that people didn't know even existed. So, I, I think they they've done a pretty good job of trying to get to pretty much every single character at this point. Okay, next we've got uh, I don't even know if this is supposed to be a word, but you got ZJG two one one nine eight. Nice. I think his cat walked across the keyboard. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. I like that. That's a great. Uh, it says, uh, first of all, telling congratulations on a great first season. Cool. And they're hoping for a release of the soundtrack. Is there any news on when that's going to get released? Oh, that's a good question. I do know that the um, end title song by UDD or Up, Dumb, or Down um, will be coming out, um, released on its own. I think you can buy it on like Spotify or whatever um, service you've got. The actual soundtrack that's been done by the Kiners, which is which is uh, Kevin Kiner and his two sons, Sean and Dean, who are all composers. Uh, I got a three-for-one deal on that one. I don't know exactly when when and if they're going to release it. I mean, it, I, the thing with Netflix is that they're in charge of everything. So, you know, you can get the soundtracks for all my films. Like, they, they always... I don't know if Warner Music or if there's another second, uh, other outside company that releases all of the, the soundtracks, but they do do it for every single one. Do you guys happen to know of any any of the soundtracks of the of the Netflix originals have ever been released on on anything? Oh, um, I think it has for Stranger Things. Oh, has it? Yeah, okay, I think yeah. Bloodline did as well. Okay, good. So there's precedent. So um, if w- at least one of those shows had it, then it, I think there's a good chance that um, they would. Okay, uh, we've just got one more, uh, sure. and that is nice and simple. Black Pierce wants to know if the episodes will be longer next series. Um, well, if you look at it, the episodes are they're longer than the standard 22s. We've got some episodes that are about 30 minutes long. So uh, do they want hour-long episodes? I think they <laughs> you know? want more, yeah. So like, I, here's the thing. like, you know, I'd like to get a bigger order of episodes. Now, will the episodes be longer? I mean, I think we're... 30 minutes is probably the max you're going to get for the kind of what we're doing. I don't foresee us doing hour-long like Invincible. Hour-long animation is really hard to pace out. 
again, if Netflix said, Jay, we want to do hour long and you know, here's the money and schedule to, to back it up, I'd be like, awesome. Uh, most likely they won't do that. So um, I'd expect them to give us uh, hopefully a green light for a second season. And then hopefully the order for the second season is, 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 is substantial. So that way I can um, kind of spread out and pace it in a way that um, it's longer, right? I mean, I had only six episodes, and I I had one shot of of doing this this series. So I've read that some people are kind of like criticizing the fact that it's too short and this. And I'm like, dude, all we got were six episodes. I was like, do you remember Castlevania had four episodes when it first started? So, you know, I had to I had to play within these parameters, right? And I had to try to find a storyline within the original comics that fit within the six episodes that that had you know a payoff at the end that had that character arcs in there i wish i had more but hopefully yeah i mean hopefully we 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 get a big order and and then i can satisfy everybody and and people will be saying there's too many episodes they should have cut it down (laughs) right it'll be like yeah you know it's either too short or too long you know very rarely do you ever hit a sweet spot well treasure is absolutely amazing on six episodes, much Thanks. better than Castlevania on his four episodes. <laughs> but when it comes down Ooh. to animation, we all want to know if you can just nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. Eat that, Steve. That is the best one yet. Yeah, that scared me when it came on. I, I thought at first I thought it was like, did I leave my TV on? Is like, what's what's going on? So yeah, we still fail to let our guests know that this music is coming on. We genuinely thought that David Zucker had left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a commercial. I thought it was a commercial break. I thought it's gonna be something for like you know tampons, you know, like for that time of the month. You know, like I thought I literally thought that there was a commercial going on right now. Buy new Krelm toothpaste. Yes. Like, you guys should sing along. So I would suggest in the future you should sing along to it so that way the talent or the person you're you're interviewing is like, oh, I see, it's part of the show. Well, this is the first time we've had a guest laugh while the tune is going on, so we've actually got (laughs) that in there now. Nice, nice. So Nominate 5, this is where we ask our guest to nominate five personal favorites in kind of a chosen category. And obviously, having a godfather of animation here, we've got to ask Jay Oliva what top five anime movies he would recommend for everyone out there who may not have seen them to go and find out. And we do this in a kind of countdown that never works. Never. But we're going to try <laughs> our best. We're going to start. What's at number five? Uh, okay, there's a lot of really good ones. I would say um, Street Fighter the 2, the movie. Oh, genius. Oh, yeah. I really oh, love brilliant. that one. We love that movie. And why? Well, it, it, it's awesome. Like it's, it's, I think it's the best translation of Street Fighter ever i mean i i think there's been there's been series after that i think they did alpha and some other stuff but yeah. that one like that opening scene where it's it's can't is it no it's ryu and and uh, sagat oh my god and the lightning going on it's just yeah. that's it's awesome it's, and then it is genius yeah, it's it's really good and then of course there's so many good set pieces you know you know chun li versus vega you got um it's just yeah there's so much goodness in, in that thing <laughs> kicked kicked the ass off the th- the John claude Van Damme Street Fighter movie that was released at the same time. Which yeah. Change the channel! Me and Steve. We knew we would get that in one episode. Okay, number four. 
most of these lists will have like the usuals, so I'm going to avoid the usual stuff except for maybe one or two. But uh, I would say Robot Carnival. Oh, cool. I've not heard that one in a long time. I've not heard of it at all. Tell uh, us yeah. more. Robot Carnival is pretty pretty awesome. It's an older one though. It's really it's it's and it's hard to try to find, but if you can find it, it's it's pretty awesome. Okay. Well, you have to sort that one out, Steve. That's one for another episode. Okay, number 3. Uh, this one's an easy one. It's Kiki's Delivery Service. That's probably my favorite of the Jeez. Ghibli. I mean, I love Mononoke and Howl's Moving Castle and, of course, Totoro. Yeah. But I think Kiki's a nice, it's a nice, like, you know, feel-good movie. And it's just animated so well. And it, it I think, creates a world that I want to live in. And, and, and I think that's why I like it for what it is. It's, it's a really top-to-bottom. Like, it's, it's, it's solid. Beautiful. Number two. Uh, number two, of course, would be Ninja Scroll. Oh, genius. Yeah, that's my one that I'd be like, okay, you know, it's it's usually in most people's lists, like Ghost in the Shell and Akira, and Ninja Scroll's really there, but that would be my number two. I actually watched it again for the first time in about 15 years the other day. Nice. And it's it's still brilliant, still brilliantly animated. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I mean, uh, I, I think it was one of the first ones that I saw that, really threw me off and just like how violent it was you know like I, even that opening scene like i remember that rock guy he like rips his arms off and he's drinking us drinking the blood or something i can't remember but like my mouth was just dropped <laughs> that whole sequence like am i watching this right this is awesome um but you know the action sequences i think this that was madhouse at its prime like the madhouse yeah. the animation studio was just like they that was a huge hit for them okay so what goes into the number one? Uh, number one's easy. It's Your Name. It's uh, Sh- uh, Makoto Shinkai's film, Your Name. I don't know if you... It came out a couple years ago. It's the body-swapping, teen romance, time travel. Jesus, there's so many other things that it, it combines where on paper it shouldn't work. But when you watch the film, you're like, Jesus Christ, how could they have crafted this thing in this way and it's so effective but it's my all-time favorite it's it's so good and i have not actually seen this yet so now i'm gonna go and hunt this one down myself it was the top grossing film for japan for a while but i think it got dethroned a couple years ago but it, it actually like toured around the world and um like i i saw it here in la they actually did screenings here in LA, and it, it it was and the screenings were all sold out. I mean, it's 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 really really good. And if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. You know that director Makoto Shinkai is he's amazing. And in fact, one of his trademarks is like, you know, other than like these kind of really personal stories uh, about the, the trials and tribulations of the the characters he covers, but his backgrounds are beautiful. They they're almost photo real where they look like photos, but they're of course, you know, stylized and painted. And that's where I kinda took my kind of cue from for Tresse, where I wanted the backgrounds of Manila to have that painterly quality, but also that familiarity when you see it, you're like, oh that that looks like, you know, this particular street on in Manila, right? And that's what he does a lot in his films, is that he captures Tokyo in such a way that um it's it's very artistic and very beautiful. No, definitely I am gonna check that out. Jay, uh as always, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Absolute pleasure having you here. It really has been up. great. Thanks for having me on. I, I know my answers are long, so maybe you guys can edit it down. But but yeah, nah. it was a fun time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> wonderful. We don't edit this down. We keep it all nice, tight, and square. Yes. Oh, nice. Nice. Speaking of which, Steve, what's in the box? 
What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? So you? is that Steve singing? Is that you, Steve? Because it doesn't sound like Andrew. No, no, that because I think it's uh, Andrew. This guy called I, Neil. Oh, uh, okay. Because Andrew can't carry a tune unless it's like you know some drinking you know pub song. I guess <laughs> I couldn't carry a tune if it had a handle on it. Well, yes. I'm actually a bit pissed off there because I had a great little segue that I was going to use Kiki's delivery service and having a box. I'm sorry, I took and, a, no, no, Andy I, ruined I, I, it. He I, ruined it. I, I took your, I took your steam, but I don't know. Here's the thing: I think I saved you because you don't ever want to put Kiki and box in the same sentence. So I wouldn't do that. <laughs> okay, yeah. fair enough. You were saved. Okay, Steve. Explain the rules, what's in the box. Okay, then, this is a segment of the show where Andy tries to teach me about good movies. Now, basically, I tend to watch a lot of movies with car chases and big explosions and the big popcorn fodder, and Andy's trying to get me into more... Diverse. More diverse cinematic fare, so basically... (laughs) Diverse, is that in quotes? Because uh, Andrew's (laughs) taste in films are quite uh, (laughs) coloured. Well, it's been definitely diverse so far. We've gone from the likes of About Schmidt. We've gone to Surf's Up. Then over the last two weeks, we've watched Teeth and Casualties of War. So yes, it's definitely been diverse. So basically, Andy's going to put his hand into a box and he's going to pull out a name of a film. And this film is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If I have seen it, then it goes to one side and he picks out another one until we find one that I haven't seen. And then I go away and I watch that the night before we record our next episode. So, so Andrew, what have you yes. got? Well, the first one pulled out this week, and let's see if you have seen it or not. It is 1991's Coen Brothers movie, Barton Fink. Yes, I have. Long time ago, but yes, I have. Okay, so that one's out. Let me rummage in, find another one. What have we got here? You have David Cronenberg's Stephen King adaptation of The Dead Zone from 1983. Hmm. That I haven't seen. Well, there you go. That is your movie for before our next podcast. And you won't believe this, Jay, but our next podcast uh, will feature uh, former Warner Brothers senior VP Bill Daly, who's coming on for our anniversary, our 10-year anniversary of the Green Lantern movie. <laughs> Oh, nice, nice. That'll, that'll, <laughs> yeah. that'll be a fun one. Was Bill was Bill over there during that time with Green Lantern? Yes, he was. Oh. He was uh, one of the. He was the senior vice president at Warner Brothers at the time. He has the most amazing stories of movies from Warner Brothers from 1990 all the way to I think it was 2013, 2014. Oh wow, it's gonna be a fun one. Yeah, not for Bill. He, he <laughs> Bill has been the case of. Do we have to do this movie? I was like, yes, we do. Because it's the only one being celebrating a 10-year anniversary that week. Wait, wait. So so are you going to like go over Green Lantern? <laughs> yes. <Yep. laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah. Um, that's... Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I don't it's, know. Yeah. I, I, good luck, Steve. Good luck. And may <laughs> yeah. God have mercy on your soul. Oh, yeah. The problem well, is we've both watched it and now we're going to have to watch it all again just to... Well, oh, it's like I say, this film is perfectly balanced between people who genuinely hate it and people who haven't seen it. You should just do a podcast where you watch it and you're just talking while you're watching it. Well, <laughs> like, you know wait what? a minute, they all know each other? I didn't know. This is so weird how the bad guy and the romantic lead and Hal Jordan all know each other and they all knew each other from school. How convenient, right? Like, it's like... <laughs> 
Wow. Why is like, there no bad guy until the end of the fourth yes, act? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know what, Jake? Yeah. We may have to pull you back just to do that kind of episode on something in the future. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> just to torment you even further. So, yes. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> well, just, yeah. I don't know if I want to talk about Green Lantern, but, like, yeah. Give me a good film and yeah. we can go over it. We'll bring you back for Jonah Hex. Oh, Jonah Hex. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not bad. You know what? I'll do Jonah Hex, but don't bring me back for Catwoman. Like, I wouldn't do Catwoman. <laughs> no, no, we wouldn't Cat- do that yeah. to you. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jay, thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to having you back again. Everyone, please go and check out Treze on Netflix. Uh, choose your language, whichever suits you. If you prefer your subtitles, go for subtitles with the original uh, dialogue. If not, go for the English. I believe you've got Lou Diamond Phillips doing one of the voices. Is that correct? Uh, yes, he is. Yeah, Lou. Uh, Lou's uh, pretty pretty damn good at it. So, um, yeah, we got Lou and uh, quite a few other really noticeable char- uh, noticeable actors. So it's good. That is awesome. Well, go and check this out. Jay, uh, all the best to you. All the best to everyone at Lexanotis. We look forward to having you back with new projects and finding out what's going on. Yes, we do. Cool. Thanks. So with that in mind, Steve, better cue our exit music. Okay. Right. Warm up the car. <laughs> Warm up the car. So it's goodbye from me, Andrew Roger Carson. And it's also goodbye from him, Andrew Roger Carson. And we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Jibba-jabba.